Hello, it's Tom Galvard here, just continuing this series of podcast episodes associated with the chapters of my recently published book, From Rutledge, Critical Perspectives on Diversity in Organisations. And this time I'll be dealing with um, a chapter in the part of the book that deals with what I've called defining aspects of a critical perspective. Last time I dealt with history as a defining aspect. This time I'll be thinking about power as a defining aspect. Power is a very, very difficult subject to talk about, I think, from a critical perspective, because it means acknowledging just how pervasive power can be in our world. It runs through almost any critical perspective and almost any discussion of diversity, power being an immense topic and in many ways the principal vehicle through which many inequalities are created and maintained. I look at, first of all, how to define power, and just the basic point, I think, perhaps the most accessible point about it, is that we can just think and acknowledge and reflect on the fact that there are probably many different types of power, or as some people have described it, many different faces of power, Power can be something that is quite naked, it can be quite obvious, it can be quite violent and coercive, but it can also be very subtle and very internal and very intimate. We may or may not even be aware of some of the operations of power. I also talk about the relationship between power and politics, and politics typically differentiated as the activity of rearranging resources and relationships by using power. So if power is the capacity to influence other people, we would do that with maybe political objectives, activities or interests in mind. And just this idea that power is almost a force field or a force, and we could use prepositions to describe power. Power can be in things, power can be held over things, power can operate through things, and power can be felt against things as well. And the the mainstream view of management and organisations is almost just to sort of accept power as something that is present in organisations Maybe even to see it as something that it's a little bit stigmatised to talk about. And Jeffrey Pfeffer's done a lot to say, well, power's an inevitable part of organisational life. But even there, the moment we acknowledge power, we can risk sort of neutralising it or taking it for granted all over again. You know, saying that power is just business as usual or power is just doing what's necessary. Even the mere feeling of power psychologically can change how people see the world or change how they behave. And power has this quality of being sort of everywhere and nowhere. We sometimes don't know exactly where to locate power, if it's in a particular person or a set of practices or really just almost through 
the whole system of the way our societies and organisations are set up. And as I move forward with the chapter, I do acknowledge the role of very significant French continental philosophical thinkers like Michel Foucault or Pierre Bourdieu and how they have given us a way of thinking about how power is structural and embedded and really makes up all the relationships that we see in our societies. And so if you start to apply that to diversity in organisations, you start to get inside the experiences of different groups and individuals who really feel the forces of power operating on how they think and how they express themselves and that we're all subject to control in organisational life from relative positions of power and disadvantage and inequality. And scholars have sometimes tried to, to look at diversity in these terms, that it's about networks of people, it's about groups of people who have different diverse backgrounds and exist in different positions within a social structure, whether it's the job or role they're in, the occupation or profession they're in, or the industry or the sector. And that power and influence and a sense of freedom will sort of run through all sorts of different diverse groups and individuals. And it can, of course, be difficult to reshape social structures and challenge relations of power. And the question is, what do we do when we do that? And how do we do that? Do we simply replace the power, the relations and structures of power with something else equally problematic? How do we live in a world that is free from conformity and control and, and what would that even look like? And so in my version of Michel Foucault's work, this is a very deep critical perspective because it sort of implies that Power is hidden, it's invisible, it's quite difficult to confront, and yet it's very important. It shapes the way we talk, the way we think, and really it points out that we're constantly trying to manage things, we're constantly trying to control things, but there will always be unmanageable, uncontrollable parts of that system as well so it's a sort of again as with so much critical perspectives so much in critical perspectives it's a sort of consciousness raising you know saying that when we decide to use particular language or uphold particular relationships and identities that's power you know power reflecting the boundaries of who we are and our reality and our world. And so simply acknowledging that and saying, well, maybe there are ways to subvert it or to at least call it into question and to maybe temporarily flee from power or reject power is probably as, 
as good as it sometimes gets. But that's really what these critical perspectives on power reveal to us. That we're constantly battling with a mixture of control and freedom. I also talk about resistance again in this chapter um, in a more dedicated way as a particular dynamic of power. Wherever you have power, you're more than likely to find it coexisting with forces of resistance. And those forces of resistance can take many forms. They could be private, public, individual, collective, and maybe organized with very different aims in mind, whether it's to regain power, to destabilize it, or achieve a variety of other forms of social change. So there's a sort of push-pull relationship going on with power and resistance, and this can be quite productive. And it could be anything from making a joke or, or a sort of mildly subversive remark through to acts of great disruption and courage around whistleblowing and activism and maybe collective acts of protest and rebellion as well. And from the perspective of diverse individuals in an organisation, it could be something moment to moment that we experience in our bodies and in our decisions to, to do things from one moment to the next. We may feel there is some sort of path open to us that reflects resistance. When we're in teams or undergoing practices or just trying to go about our daily lives, we may find that there are times when we want to behave differently from the norm or we want to express ourselves differently. And indeed, many minorities show great subtlety and great courage and inventiveness in, in how they do this. They sort of take back control and empower themselves by resisting certain norms of organisational life. And this could be anything from behaving in a masculine or feminine manner in terms of your dress or appearance at work. It could be using your body as an instrument of protest. And it could be disrupting the employment relationship where workers feel exploited or mistreated they actively resist and come together collectively to process conflicts over their pay and working conditions. And I move this chapter further forward by talking about other themes where power and diversity are implicated. And there's so many things that could be covered here. I talk a little bit about privilege and elites. I talk also about inequality and inequalities and I talk a little bit about feminism and gendered power relations as well elites are interesting because I often slip into using the term minorities to talk about oppressed minorities but obviously elites represent privileged minorities where a majority share of power is concentrated in the hands of a minority group and probably we do need more research in organisations that considers types of elite head-on. 
And some of these ideas of elitism and inequalities can be difficult to confront and talk about explicitly because they represent quite daunting and ugly problems to do with imbalances and distortions of power. And so there's discussion of what constitutes privilege, often discussion of whiteness and white privilege, but also class privilege, masculine privilege, and sort of combinations of identity that are bound up in stereotypes of power, leadership and hierarchy. And many of these ideas continuing to endure in elite communities and privileged layers of our societies, almost like a, f a form of natural resource that can be used to, to maintain inequalities. And obviously working economics is continuing to reveal to us this glaring problem of stark widening income inequality. And we still have to reckon with what that will mean inside organizations where you have senior managers and executives and owners who amass wealth and earn incomes that are many, many orders of magnitude larger than people working at the bottom of the organization, lower down at the lower levels or on the front lines. And then globally, you have relationships, sometimes ironically meant to potentially address inequalities around philanthropy, charitable donors, foreign aid, non-governmental organizations. But actually, these end up being new ways of, of controlling the people who are subject to them to subject subject to these practices and if we step one step removed from inequality it's a somewhat distressing and persistent idea that there are many many forms of poverty and that many policies many forms of economic policy be they neoliberal austerity to do with financialization or taxation are making these things worse. And so there are difficult questions to confront around how we draw attention to inequality in ways that don't simply sanitize it or institutionalize it or take it for granted. And in the 21st century, it seems we need new ways of becoming aware of what some scholars have called inequality footprints the kind of traces of stakeholder relationships, elitism, patterns of debt and global inequality that ultimately lead to forms of inequality that we can no longer ignore or connect with our own lives. And finally, I, as I say, I talk about gender and power and feminism and some of the critical connections there in shaping diversity research in recent years. Almost all aspects of organisational life can be argued to reflect gendered inequalities where many people would wish to portray them as gender neutral. This is quite hard to defend 
in the face of overwhelming evidence of gender power effects, whether it's to do with childcare, maternity or housework, or to do with the everyday sexism and misogyny concerning feminine bodies, aesthetics and sexualities. And as I say, clearly, many great books have been given over to these subjects of gender and organisations. But it's only in the sort of last 20 20 to 30 years that there's been this growing realisation that organisations remain highly gendered. Gender is almost like a metaphor where concepts like rationality, leadership, entrepreneurship, career, hierarchy, all still carry powerful masculine connotations. I think the classicist historian and feminist Mary Beard has done a great job in highlighting how ancient history and myths show right across history to the present day how we still struggle societally and culturally with the very concept of powerful women or women in power, portraying them as threatening and demonic in some way. And so the feminist struggle still concerns women acting as change agents and trying to experience empowerment in terms of how they transform organisational power relations and try to challenge masculine norms and point towards alternative possibilities of what organisations and practices might look like. But this is a a dangerous and risky endeavour and of course power relations can always reassert themselves and women may find themselves silenced, subject to violence and oppression according to masculine and patriarchal aspects of organisational life. So there remains a gender power subtext to organisations. In many countries there are laws and policies that exclude women from participation in organisational life in one way or another. And there are many persistent issues around sexual harassment. And even the idea of feminism, which has perhaps become acceptable in certain ways in many organisations, is still a slightly ambivalent one. And this is also reflected in the idea of post-feminism, a term that complicates the progress made by feminism in that this progress is perhaps still a selective and problematic progress which coexists with other long-standing pressures that affect many women differently. And I think what we will continue to see in gendered and feminist research on power, gendered power relations in organisations is new forms of solidarity and resistance from gendered collectives and, and, and from women's groups and women's movements. Struggles to break free of gendered organisation in terms of how people talk and listen and feel and enact their work. So this has been a really difficult chapter because power and differences are everywhere in our societies and organisations and there are not really easy answers. Hopefully I've 
sketched out some perspectives that show how pervasive power can be, but also that it sheds light on particular phenomena to do with resistance, the need to be vigilant and reflect on how we are embedded in power, how we encounter people who are more powerful than we are, less powerful than we are, powerful in different ways than we are, and that we're all the time caught up in that, both in a material sense in terms of resources and rights, but also a sort of symbolic sense in terms of how we see one another, our identities, our status, and our influence over different dimensions of organisational life. Gender and race remain two profound axes of power here in organisations. And feminists and critical race theorists continue to do great work exploring these pervasive influences and power relations in organisational life. And then you have this broader backdrop of inequality, elitism, poverty, patterns of resistance. And so I think the challenge remains going forward for people in their research and practice looking at notions of power, politics, diversity and organisation to try and keep looking at combinations of power, some of which can actually be quite positive experiences where people break new ground in terms of emotions, self-awareness and actually achieving some rebalancing of relations and knowledge in terms of organisations and what they can achieve. But make no mistake, power is everywhere. It's reflected in our language and how we use concepts, how we think of ourselves and others, the practices and interventions that we're subject to, the ideologies that we may not be entirely aware that we're adopting, over our minds, our bodies and even our souls, some would argue. And so we need to keep looking at combinations of power and thinking about how they are rebalancing and reconfiguring themselves as they flow through organisations. And so I conclude the chapter by arguing that power is relational. It flows in many directions across many different relationships. And most organisations are founded on the idea of power. Power that is differentiated between groups and individuals in complex combinations of differences. And it positions individuals and groups in structures that are interdependent, where these groups depend on one another and their power relations as a sort of organising function. And so many settings and trends will continue to affect power relations in diversity and organisations. And I encourage people to keep looking at these issues. There are many great streams of work on things like social movements and activism, financialization, globalization, government intervention, and certainly in the more extreme and tragic cases, acts of sadism, terror and violence as well. But it may be that we're seeing subtle shifts in power away from the West, gradually towards the East or other parts of the globe, and certainly diffusion of power to some degree through technology 
and diverse stakeholders. And so I think we'll continue to see how research and practice faces up to these flows of power as they run through organisations and the political contests that, that constitute them. So that's it for this time. Definitely a philosophical, difficult topic of power. Next time, I'll be talking about Chapter 5, which looks at institutions, the third and final chapter on what I've been calling defining aspects of a critical perspective. So thanks for listening. I hope to see you next time when I talk about institutions and diversity in organisations.